Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. This morning we will be looking at the end of chapter 5, John chapter 5, and I will be reading verses 30 through 47. Hear the word of God. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But if you believed Moses, You would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Rene Descartes was a famous French philosopher in the 1600s. He's probably best known for one very simple statement. I think... Therefore, I am. I think, therefore, I am. That sounds kind of silly to us, but in the philosophy of the day, it was considered profound, and it still is. That insight, I think, therefore, I am, came to Descartes as he wrestled with the most basic question that any of us have to ask. How do we know what we know? How can we be sure about what is true? How can we overcome the doubts that we live with in life? Descartes' approach to doing philosophy was to pursue doubt as far as he could possibly pursue it. He became the ultimate skeptic, doubted everything to decide if there was anything 
that he could rest his feet upon and be certain about and hold to is true. For instance, he doubted, is there a God? And even if he could determine that there was a God, how could you know what God was like? And what if the God of the universe is a deceiving God? What if we couldn't believe anything that the God that created the universe says? And you can see how this line of reasoning goes. He's trying to doubt everything to determine if he could prove for certain that anything was true. And he doubted and he doubted and he doubted to the point where he doubted his own doubt. And that's where he found his revelation. At the point where he said, am I really doubting? He came to this conclusion. The fact that I'm doubting means that I'm thinking. And the fact that I'm thinking means that I exist. The presence of the thought of doubt to him proved his own existence. And he built his whole philosophy on that one place where he felt he could put his feet and stand and be certain. Some have called him the father of modern philosophy because of that. Because unlike medieval philosophers who tended to base their starting point on the reality of God, he based his starting point for all of his philosophy on his own sense of existence based on the reality of his thought life. And so man became the beginning point of knowing what is true instead of God being the beginning point of what is true. That's interesting because Descartes himself came to a conclusion there is a God, and he actually uh, professed in the God of the Bible a belief in the God of the Bible. But it's that starting point with man that philosophers look back on now and say that was a real turning point in world philosophy. Every one of us has to decide the answer to that same question. How do you know what is true? What will you base your sense of reality upon? Where are you going to put your feet down and begin to base your evaluation of everything that you come across in life, what is true and what is false? Who will speak with authority in your life? Who will provide that kind of certainty that you need to live? We all strive to have parents or teachers or judges or doctors or even car repairmen who speak with authority about what is true so that we can trust what they say. John 5 is all about that struggle to know what is true. We've been looking at this the last couple of times we've been together. In the beginning of the chapter, remember that Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath. And right there, you've got a question about ultimate authority and what is ultimately true. Because what is the Sabbath? What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? Who gets to dictate that? Who's the ultimate authority? And that's really the issue that underlies this whole chapter. Because when the Jewish leaders who professed to be the authority on what God had said the Sabbath was and how to keep it, when they challenged Jesus for healing a man and telling him to pick up his bed and walk on the Sabbath, he responded by basically upping the stakes. We saw that the last time we were together. He claimed to have the authority 
to speak about the Sabbath based upon the fact that he is the unique son of God who has the power and authority as the unique son of God to give life, both spiritual life and physical life, and even more shockingly claim to have the authority to be the judge of all mankind who will be sitting on the throne of judgment at the end of history determining the eternal destiny for all of us. I don't know about you, but as I work through that, that, that's just astounding the claims that Jesus makes in the middle of this chapter. And so in verses 28 and 29, if you look there for a moment, listen to what he says. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so the basic question is, who is Jesus Christ to make such a claim? Why should these respected religious and civil leaders bow to what he says? And that's what leads us to this last section of chapter 5. It takes place in a casual setting, but the language that Jesus uses here at the end of chapter 5 is the language of a courtroom. He's speaking as a defendant on the stand, giving evidence for his claims to speak with power and authority. And so we're going to be looking at this morning, what are the corroborating evidences or the corroborating witnesses to Jesus' claim to be the source of life and the judge of all mankind? That's what he's answering here. Look at verse 31. It's interesting how he begins his defense. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. What Jesus is saying there, he's not trying to cast any doubt on what he's saying is true or false. What he's saying there is he's basically granting the point, the legal point, that that in a courtroom, no one stands by his own defense. Matter of fact, you know what the principle of the Old Testament law was, that it says in Deuteronomy 19, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And even if you take it further, even in our own law, we have it written into our law that it's a basic principle of justice that you cannot incriminate yourself by your own testimony. But on the other side, you also cannot clear yourself by your own testimony. Just plain common judicial sense. Somebody can't stand and say, judge, I didn't do it, and have the judge say, well, okay, go, you go free then. Obviously, you can't clear yourself by your own testimony. And so Jesus is granting the point to his accusers here. He's saying, I acknowledge that just because I said so is not a good enough excuse. I can use that as a father, but but Jesus cannot use it to defend himself. Just because I said so is not enough of a witness. So in verse 32, Jesus promises a star witness. This is actually the most important statement that he makes in his entire defense is verse 32. He says, there is, an, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What he's saying there is it all comes down to one witness. Who will witness about me, and it's his testimony that you need to believe, and it's his testimony that establishes my position, my power, and my authority. He's got a star witness, but he's not going to call him quite yet. 
More on that in a minute. First, he refers to a witness among men before he gets to a star witness. A witness that these Jewish leaders had already heard at length. The witness of John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. He names John there, John the Baptist, in verse 33. And then in verse 35, he calls John a burning and shining lamp. And he says that they were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We've already seen in earlier chapters that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist was the most popular religious figure in all of Judea. Everyone came to hear him. He spoke with incredible authority among the people of God. He was the prophet. After 400 years of silence, God appeared to be speaking through this prophet. And he was so popular that even the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders and civil leaders, respected John the Baptist, respected his popularity, and they were fearful of John the Baptist because he was so immensely popular among the people. And Jesus reminds them, He says, you sent to John. You sent to John. He's talking about that delegation. Remember back in chapter 1, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, and the Levites, sent a delegation to John to find out if he was claiming to be the Messiah. And you remember what he said there. Look at verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Jesus, or John the Baptist would go on to call Jesus, this one to come, to call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of God. The Christ. And the Bridegroom sent by the Father. That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus Christ. And so Jesus points these Jewish leaders back to his witness. As it said back in chapter 1 in the prologue to this entire gospel, remember what it said about John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. As Jesus calls him here, He was a burning and shining lamp. I love that visual image for what a human witness is to Jesus Christ. John is maybe the greatest lamp among men, but all men who are called to bear witness to Jesus Christ are like lamps. And if you know what lamps were in the first century, they were just little clay pots. And those clay pots, all by themselves, can give off absolutely no light whatsoever. But if you filled them with oil and you lit them with fire, they could light up a room. And that's really what we are, isn't it? We are just clay pots, worthless by ourselves. But if filled with the, the oil of the Holy Spirit, lit by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we can bear witness to the light. And the light that is within us, that's put there by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, can bring light to everyone around us. And John was one of those lamps like we are, but he was maybe the greatest among men. Jesus himself said, there is no one greater among men than John. Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, looking forward from this point where we are in John 5, the 
Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, came and questioned his authority on another occasion. And let me just read to you part of that account. I'm in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. It says, The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, to Jesus, as he was teaching, and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? The same question we're dealing with here in chapter 5. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the an- if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? The leaders went off among themselves and had this discussion. It says, they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, John was a clear and faithful witness to the light. And because they would not acknowledge the witness of John, Jesus would have nothing to do with them. And so that's how great John the Baptist's witness was. But notice what Jesus does here back in John chapter 5. Here in John 5, he makes it clear that he is not going to rest his case for his claim to authority and power on the testimony of John the Baptist, no matter how great John the Baptist was. Because, ultimately, the authority of Christ cannot be based on the word of any sinful man. As Psalm 116 says, all mankind are liars. Ultimately, the testimony for Christ cannot rest upon the testimony of man. Jesus makes that clear in verse 34. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. In verse 41, if you skip down there, he says, I do not receive glory from people. Jesus was not fearful of the opinions of men. Because ultimately his claims did not rest upon the opinions of men, whether they were positive or negative. Remember back in chapter 2, we read this statement. John concluded, John chapter 2 with this statement about the reliability or trustworthiness of the opinions of men and women and children. Listen to what he says, verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is actually a really important point for us to realize that The glory of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ is not based upon the testimony of man whatsoever. And it is not diminished even in the slightest when any man, woman, or child either criticizes, rejects, blasphemes him We do not add to his glory by our praises. We do not diminish his glory when we reject him or refuse him or contradict him. Because it's not based upon our testimony. Verse 36, Jesus says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. 
And that's where he moves to his key witness, his star witness, the witness of God the Father. Now, this is actually, you know, if somebody were out there on the street listening to this, if we were broadcasting it to the community, they would say, oh, yeah, many, many, many people have claimed to speak for God. Why should we believe the claims of Jesus? Well, Jesus offers two types of evidence here. First of all, he goes to the signs. We've talked a lot about signs in the Gospel of John. John, as a witness to Christ, felt that the signs that Jesus did were crucially important to our understanding of who he is. Look at the second half of verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father testifies to the power and the glory and authority of Jesus Christ by these signs. We've seen that Jesus didn't do miracles like healing the sick, raising the dead, changing water to wine, walking on water, feeding 5,000. He didn't do any of these signs in order primarily to just make people more comfortable and more prosperous and more healthy. He didn't, that's not why he did signs. Signs point to truth. And the signs of Jesus pointed to his glory and his authority, his person and his work. That's what the signs pointed to. And Nicodemus was one of those who got the message. Nicodemus, remember back in chapter 3, said, We know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That was the purpose of all of his miracles. They were testimonies that God had sent him. That his claims were true. Over in chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says there, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's very popular these days to dismiss the miracles recorded in the New Testament the miracles recorded in the Gospels, it's very popular to dismiss those, whether it's not really, really important, whether they really happened or not. And what they're really saying when they say that is that we don't believe that happened. That's myth. That's legend. That's just some primitive religious idea. What's really important is what Jesus taught. But that's not what Jesus claimed. He said, these miracles I do so that you might believe that I have the authority and the glory and the power to, to do what I claim to do and to be who I claim to be. That's why these signs are done. And the greatest sign that Jesus ever accomplished was his own resurrection. The greatest miracle which established his authority as the life giver and judge of all. It's based on that authority that Paul stood on Mars Hill in Athens before all the great philosophers of his day and said this in, in Acts chapter 17. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All men need to repent and bow a knee to Jesus Christ. We know that because of his miracles, ultimately the miracle of raising from the, being raised from the dead. 
The resurrection was God's statement to the world saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's what the resurrection meant. That's what it pointed to. Which brings us to the second corroborating witness of the father, which is the testimony of his own word. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Well, when did God speak? When did God the Father speak and bear witness to the power and authority of God the Son, Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus here is not referring to some audible voice from the clouds. That's not what he's referring to. Because he goes on to say, his voice, the Father's voice, you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And that's true for almost everybody in history. It's a very rare occasions that sinful human beings have heard the voice of God or seen any representation or form of God. Very, very rare. God has never expected any of us to base our faith in him on hearing an audible voice or seeing a visual form of God. Why? Because we're sinners. I guarantee that tomorrow you would doubt what you said you heard and saw. That's not what we base our certainty. It's not what we base our confidence upon. Where did God's people hear the voice of God? Look at verse 39. Jesus tells them where. You search the scriptures and it is they that bear witness about me. That is an incredible claim that Jesus makes there. The Old Testament scriptures, the scriptures that these Jewish leaders were raised to memorize and study and search their entire lives. He says the Old Testament was written about me. He is the subject of that entire book. Now that's shocking because these leaders, they called themselves, as Jesus says later, disciples of Moses. He says, you set your hopes upon Moses, the writings of Moses, the law upon which the witness of the the prophets is given. He says in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Christ. If their eyes were open, they would have seen it. If their ears were open, they they would have heard it. It's the voice of God testifying to the power and authority of Christ. You see, the law of Moses was not given as a means of knowing God. It was given as a description of the righteousness of Christ. Matter of fact, if you base your hope upon the law, Jesus says in verse 45, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you accept the law of Moses, but do not accept the Christ that it points to, then you are eternally lost under the condemnation of God because the law without Christ only accuses of sin. When Moses wrote about the tabernacle, he was not talking about where God lives. The tabernacle was a picture of who Jesus Christ is and what he was sent to do. When Moses wrote about the priests and the rituals of cleansing and atonement, 
He was not writing about how we can earn our way into favor in God's presence. Moses was writing about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his shed blood, which covers our sin. When Moses wrote about the one who had come to crush the head of the serpent, he was writing about Christ. When Moses wrote about the manna given in the wilderness and the water that flowed from the rock by God's provision, he was writing about Jesus Christ. When Moses wrote about the deliverance of the Israelites from bondage to slavery and death in Egypt, he was writing about Jesus Christ sent to be our deliverer ultimately from sin and death. When Moses wrote about Moses and Joshua leading people into the promised land, he was not writing about some future promise of an earthly kingdom. He was writing about Jesus Christ bringing us into the new heavens and the new earth, being in the presence of God for all eternity. Remember when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, met with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says there in Luke 24, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament is God's voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Every Saturday, there's a clergy column in the local newspaper. And last Saturday, it was written by a local Jewish rabbi. And I was intrigued when I read the introduction to his column because he basically quoted some another Christian pastor's column from a few weeks before, basically calling him to account for making this statement. It said, this Christian pastor had written, any Christian sermon that pleases Jews or Muslims is not a real Christian sermon. And his point there, as I understand it as another Christian pastor, his point there is that if you just preach law without the gospel, if you preach righteousness without mercy, then you're not really preaching a Christian sermon. But this rabbi takes this pastor to task over it, makes a couple of statements, share uh, just a couple of statements with you. First of all, he shows that he really doesn't understand the gospel because he says, having this message as a requirement for all sermons, the, the requirement that you present Jesus is the only way to the Father, having this message as a requirement for all sermons is boring. Regular attenders already believe in Jesus as their Savior. The sermon is a place of illumination, and beating the same sermonic drum week after week after week is not a sign of faithfulness. It's a sign of a lack of creativity and spiritual energy. I grieve for this man because he does not understand the glory of the gospel. That we preach the gospel as part of every message every week because all the rest of it is worthless if the gospel is not true. And all striving for truth and righteousness is worthless if the gospel is not true. It's the work of God in us that produces anything good. But then he, he also shows that he miss, misses the whole point of the Old Testament in this paragraph. He says, insisting on this gospel message in every sermon limits Jesus and God. 
He says one can find support for this notion in the New Testament's John 1.14, where it talks about the word becoming flesh. Jesus, according to John, was a walking, living, talking Torah, the embodiment of the kind of behavior God hoped to inspire when writing the Torah and giving it to humanity. As a living example of holiness and godliness, Jesus' human example is worth teaching, preaching, and following. You hear what he's saying there? You want to believe that Jesus is the only way to God? That's fine. Keep it to yourself. Don't talk about it all the time. What's really, what's the glorious message of Scripture Even if, again, he's kind of arguing the New Testament against us. He's saying what you should get from the New Testament is that Jesus came to live as a perfect example of the law so that you'll be inspired to live the way he lived. And he says that we're limiting God by saying that. He misses the point of the Old Testament. He misses the point of the Torah. He misses the point of the law of Moses. It wasn't given to us as a way to make ourselves acceptable to God. It was given to us as a picture of the righteousness of Christ that we fall so far short of. He misses the point of the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices and the blood that is on every page of the Old Testament. He misses the message of all the prophets that says that our hearts must be circumcised. We must be changed from within. We must accept the new covenant promise of this Redeemer, this Messiah, that pays for our sins, that gives us the gift of righteousness and makes us acceptable to God. Jesus, in verse 38, tells us the answer to the age-old question of why so many Jews like this rabbi and so many of the Jews of all of history, search the scriptures and miss the voice of God and do not recognize Jesus Christ as the one sent by the Father. He says in verse 38, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 43, you do not receive me. You see, it's not a problem of a lack of revelation to the Jewish people, either past or present. It's not a problem of a lack of intellect on their part. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he talked about the veil that Moses had to wear when he came down from the mountain because the people of God were so overwhelmed by the the afterglow of one who had been in the presence of a holy God. And Paul says, speaking of the Jews of his own day, When they, the unbelieving Jews, read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Jesus Christ is it taken away. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And there you have the key to all knowledge and wisdom in the universe. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's foolish. Let me underline that. It is Foolish to not seek certainty about spiritual reality. It's foolish to not try to find out what is true behind the physical reality of this life. It's foolish to not try to find out who God is. 
It's foolish to not try to find out what's the meaning of life. It's foolish to not try to find out what happens after death. And so many of the people that we live and work and play and, and, and interact with day in and day out aren't even seeking those answers. But it's no better to look in the wrong place for those answers. Where will you find certainty? Where will you dismiss all your doubts? Where are you going to plant your feet philosophically about what is true in an ultimate sense? Jesus says eternal life is in the Scriptures because the Scriptures are the voice of God. But the veil that covers the Scriptures is only taken away when you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who, as Paul says in Colossians, is the tre- is in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Believe in him. He will open your eyes. He'll open your ears. He is the word of God. The full revelation of all that we need to know about God and eternal life. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this portrayal of the glory of Christ in John 5. Father, I ask that you would forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for looking within ourselves for the ultimate judge of all that is true and certain in life. Give us hearts that look to Christ and keep on looking to Christ every day and basing our whole understanding of reality on what he has revealed to be true, for he is the eternal Son of God in whom there is eternal life and who is the judge of all mankind. Thank you for allowing us to see his glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.